and welcome to Educators to Educators podcast. I'm Carrie Conover, and this is episode number 23, publishing a children's book with my special guest, literary agent, Paul Rodine. Today's episode is a pretty long one, and it's got a lot of really good information. I interview Paul Rodine, who owns Rodine Literary Management. Paul represents a lot of very well-known children's authors, including Victoria Jamieson and Peter Brown, just to name a few. Paul talks about how to get that children's book that you've always had in your head, written down on paper, and potentially published into a children's book. So we're going to get started right away with Paul, and we're going to have this episode go with no interruptions at all. So before we get going, just one reminder to check out our new website, educatorstoeducators.com. There's new content being published to that website every single day. And just a reminder that October 12th, we are starting our teacher sleep challenge. There's still time to sign up. And if you're listening to this podcast after October 12th, you can do the challenge on your own. Find out more information at educatorstoeducators.com. Today, I have a very special guest with me, an old friend, Mr. Paul Rodine. Paul is the president at Rodine Literary Management. And I've known Paul for, I think, 15 years now. And my husband, Brian, he's known Paul a lot longer. My husband, Brian, grew up with Paul in a very small town in Illinois. And when I first met Paul, when I was dating my husband, I have to tell you, Paul was always one of my favorite people to see. If I was going to a wedding or just getting together with Brian's childhood friends, Paul was one of the first people I always looked for. Paul is one of those guys that just makes everyone feel so welcome and makes people laugh and just feel comfortable with who they are. I will tell you one thing I learned, I'm not from a small town, and so one thing I learned about the small town that my husband and Paul grew up in is that all the men, they like really love to hang out in their garages. So like they'll come over instead of hanging out in the basement or you know in the living room, they all hang out in the garage. So like this was something that a new concept for me. But I will tell you the one thing I learned about Paul is that people like his garage for one really good reason. Paul is an incredible storyteller. Paul can tell a story like no one I've ever met. And I've learned that if we go back to the hometown, my husband's hometown, to visit Paul, people are going to be there and they're going to be in his garage till three or four in the morning just to hear Paul's stories. So it's so natural that Paul turned his, you know, passion for storytelling that comes so naturally to him into a career where he helps authors tell their stories and bring their stories to life. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining me on Educators to Educators. Oh, Carrie, what a gracious introduction. I truly appreciate that. That's uh, very sweet of you to say. Uh, I think uh, you, you, you patted me on the back maybe a little too hard there. <laughs> well, Paul, I mean, you do remember the days when I knew no one, and you were the one that were always like, come hang in the garage with the guys. And I'd be like, okay. I do. I do remember those days fondly. <laughs> Well, Paul, I would love for you to tell all of the audience about your life, how you became the president at Rodine Literary Management. Sure. Um, well, uh, I suppose I don't know how far I should go back, but uh, I, like you kind of introed with, um, I've always been sort of enamored with with storytelling. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I think I first started out with jokes. Um, you know, in junior high and high school, I was kind of a guy that, you know, when we were at the lunch table or we were riding the bus or something like that, I always had a handful of jokes that I would be quick to tell. And then, uh, and through high school, toward my senior year, I, I, I did some speech competitions and, uh, uh, which was just sort of oral storytelling uh, with a captive audience. I always loved having a captive audience that couldn't escape, you know. <laughs> uh, and then 
I told my senior year, it, it kind of became apparent that I, I had a bit of talent when it came to writing. Um, I, I was received a, a small grant uh, that was given by the former high school English teacher called Fred Guy, um, and, and uh, he was a big influence on me. Uh, he was also the speech coach, um, so th that's where I kind of started to figure out that I, I knew, you know, that was my strength in school. Uh, I was never really strong at math or science for that matter. Um, and foreign languages were always a mystery to me. Uh, but, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but English and writing uh, became, it became clear that, that I was, you know, I'm stronger at that than anything uh, in the educational realm of things. Um, and then when I went to a, a small liberal arts school called Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, and I, again, still didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I did primarily went there, um, you know, because I knew it was a good school for education, but they were also uh, going to allow me to play Division three football and basketball there because I was a former athlete as well. Um, so I went there and, uh, you know, discovered pretty quickly that I was maybe uh, over my skis a little bit on the education side of things. Uh, I felt a little overwhelmed uh, and out of my league until I uh, started to enroll, I think it was about my sophomore year, um, on a suggestion of one of my you know, college professors, uh, I took a creative writing course. And once I found that, uh, it became really clear to me that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And uh, so I was writing five pages of fiction a week, uh, sometimes 10, depending on what, you know, class I was taking. Uh, and we were sitting, you know, after writing that stuff, we would sit amongst ourselves, you know, maybe a group of 10 and a professor, and we would read each other's stories and evaluate them, criticize them, show, you know, point out what we thought was working, what we thought wasn't working. And then at some point uh, along there, I also uh, took a job as the fiction editor uh, for the literary magazine at Knox called Catch. Um, and, uh, you know, so really sort of started to immerse myself in the writing community within the college. Um, uh, and then after graduation, I, I, you know, the same college professor that encouraged me to take the creative writing course, Robin Metz was his name, um, he encouraged me to go to this short graduate program in Denver, Colorado called the Denver Publishing Institute. Um, and up until then, I didn't know a whole lot about how the publishing world works. Uh, so I was under the impression that if you wanted to be a writer, that all you had to do is just keep writing short stories that I've been writing and keep submitting them to various magazines. And then sooner or later, you know, somebody was going to knock on your door and, and uh, uh, tell you that you were a great writer and that, you know, they wanted to publish yourself. Um, so luckily I went to the Denver Publishing Institute and they quickly informed me <laughs> that that is not how this business actually works. Um, you know, it's not the ideal way. Now, now you can, there's people that go about it and have done it that way. I'm not saying it's the impossible path to take, but uh, there, there's much more prudent ways to go about doing that sort of thing. Uh, so when I was at the Denver Publishing Institute, uh, I was educated on all the various jobs within the publishing business that I was pretty much unaware of. Um, I found out what, uh, you know, I knew what an editor was, I knew what a copy editor was, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't really understand the role of the publisher. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that there was art directors, that there was marketing and publicity people within the publishing industry. Um, and the one career uh, that I was completely unaware of uh, was this job called literary agent. And we had an actual literary agent come to the Denver Publishing Institute and talk about what he did on a day-to-day -day basis and um, what, his, what his work schedule was like. And, uh, uh, you know, what attracted to me, me to that position was that um, I didn't fancy myself a, a, a strong editor. I mean, I could do it, um, you know, the line editing, the copy editing, that sort of thing. Uh, but what I did think I would, was pretty good at was having a, a strong eye for talent. Um, and, and when I was a quote-unquote editor at the literary magazine that I worked at in college, uh, you know, looking back, I was doing very little editing, and mostly I was just a judge. And so the, you know, 100, you know, stories would come in, and I would pick, in my opinion, the best five that needed to be published in that particular issue. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's what a literary agent does. <clears throat> we get, uh, you know, tons and tons of manuscripts that come into our uh, inboxes and in our, 
are, are male, regular male, though fewer and fewer of those are coming in like that. Uh, and, and you kind of read through everything and see which ones you think are strong and which ones you think you are not. And then you start to contact the people that uh, you think are strong and you offer to you know eventually represent them and guide them through the publishing course of, of life. Uh, so then uh, I, once I, I thought that was a good fit for me, um, I went from Denver and in 2001 I moved to uh, New York City and I took an unpaid internship with a really great literary agency that still exists to, the, to this day called Sterling Lord Literistic. Um, it's a mouthful, but the Sterling Lord is an actual human being. It's a real person. Uh, he's a great literary agent. I, I think he's in his 90s at this point. Um, I'm maybe giving him a, an extra decade there. I forgive, forgive me, Sterling, if I am. Yeah, but uh, anyway, Sterling was a, a, a small farm town boy from Grinnell, Iowa, uh, or I, I, he went to Grinnell College, which was uh, in the same sports conference as, as my Knox College, um, but he grew up in a, a small town outside of Grinnell, I believe. Forgive me, I forget the name of it. Um, but he... He realized, you know, I came to New York, uh, hayseed, you know, in the big city sort of thing, and, and I think he identified some similar traits, and I maybe reminded him uh, of himself a little bit when he was starting out in the business, and uh, they sort of took me in, and I, I took an unpaid internship with it. It was a really cool job. Uh, I worked uh, for a, a gentleman by the name of Jody Hotchkiss. I was his intern, and uh, he was the film agent for uh, the literary agency, which means that um, the literary agency had you know 10 or 15 different agents inside of it, and all of those folks were selling books. And then with those books comes the ability to sell the, the film rights to that particular book. And this gentleman, Jody, he was, uh, he was in charge of uh, selling those film rights to major production companies like you know Disney or um, Sony or Paramount or 20th Century Fox, so on and so forth. And my job was to kind of be one of his filters. Uh, so these manuscripts would come in, these books would come in, and then I had to give him um, what we call in the business the elevator pitch. And the, for a film, uh, an elevator pitch is a little bit different than what you would do in, in the book world, but in, in the film world, I would do things, you know, I would read a manuscript, I would come into Jody and I would say something to the effect of, um, you'll love this, this project. It's a few good men meets the perfect storm, and I think Tom Cruise would be perfect for the lead role. And then he would hop on the phone and be like, okay, I'm going to call Oliver Stone right now and tell him that. I'd be like, wait, 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 wait. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm 22 years old. You know, like, don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't please don't call Oliver Stone. <laughs> so, uh, but anyhow, I, uh, so I did that for a little while. Uh, but I, I, like I said, it was an unpaid gig, but I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun and I got some very valuable experience. And then at some point along the line, a position opened up, uh, a paid position opened up within the company, uh, working as an assistant to a gentleman by the name of George Nicholson, who was a very famous uh, children's book publisher. He founded the uh, Dell, uh, which is an imprint of Random House. Um, and uh, so he, he worked as a publisher. He worked as an editor. He worked as a publisher. And then late in his career, he decided to move over to the literary agent side of things uh, because he felt he could help authors more from that position than he could his position as editor or publisher at these various houses. And I think he just was kind of, you know, late in his career was kind of looking for a change. Um, and so I, I had the luxury of, of uh, and the, the opportunity to work with um, George, and I worked in New York City with him for about three, three and a half years, something like that, alongside him. And he had a ton of clients back then, um, you know, way more than I would ever dream of having now. But, he, you know, he was working with 120 uh, writers and illustrators, you know, some really big name people back then. And, uh, and, and you know, I didn't think it was lucky for me then, but looking back, it was really lucky for me uh, that George didn't really know how to use computer. Um, you know, he was old school. He's and uh, so 
everything that happened at the agency with these hundred, you know, clients went through me, you know, all the email exchanges, all the phone calls, um, you know, I was privy to everything that was going on and, uh, I, we were incredibly busy and I was working long hours, but you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I, I look back now and I was learning uh, a, a tremendous amount in a short amount of time. Um, and so then, uh, about 2005, 2006, um, my, uh, we decided to uh, move back to Illinois to get a little closer to home. Uh, we went back, moved back to Chicago, and as you know, got to live you know relatively close to you uh, for a good couple of years there and actually bumped up with you for a little while. We were waiting for a condo to get built. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, Paul, I was just thinking about that, though. I remember you, I would go, I was teaching, and I would come home from school, and it would be you and I hanging out because, uh, you know, our, our spouses were not home yet, so you and I would hang out for a couple hours. And you would be, I remember you were looking at like one of Peter Brown's manuscripts. Yeah, I think I think that was the Curious Garden. Yes, it was a Curious Garden. Yeah, and he had that, that sketch dummy back there. That's back when we actually printed out sketch dummies. Everything's yes. on the computer now. But yeah, I, I had I had a printout of it, and it was a beautiful. It was gorgeous. You know, that, that's a beautiful book. It was uh, at that time. It was you know, and I think still to this day, it's one of the best illustrated books that, that Pete's done. And uh, I, I remember just being really enamored with it when it came in and it just I like, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of sit on your desk for a couple of weeks. So you just keep reminding yourself of it and get to enjoy it again and again. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, right, right around that time, which had been like 2007, 2008, um, you know, I was still working for Sterling Lord the Heuristic, but I was doing this kind of satellite office thing. And, and you know, to be perfectly frank, it, it, it wasn't really working for me. It wasn't really working for Sterling Lord either. Uh, so in 2008, you know, when, when the financial crash happened, it kind of made sense and for us to part ways. And uh, so, I, you know, with, with not much knowledge on how to do this, uh, you know, besides um, you know, I, I knew how to be an agent, but I didn't know how to run an agency. So, but I didn't let that stop me. So <laughs> I went ahead and uh, jumped right in and opened up my own shop in 2008. Um, and since then, um, you know, we've been, uh, I've been managing the careers of uh, children's book writers and illustrators, uh, you know, well, basically since 2001, but uh, with my own shop since uh, 2008. And uh, over the last decade or so, that proved to be a, really good decision uh, for everybody involved. And, uh, you know, we've had some clients go on to have uh, some really wild successes. So uh, uh, that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Well, and today, the reason I invited Paul on to the podcast is I hear teachers all the time say, I have an idea for a book, or I would love to pub publish a children's book one day. And I mean, teachers are immersed in children all day and writing and uh, reading books to children and reading books on their own. So, I mean, that is a huge part of a teacher's life. And I thought, how cool would it be for Paul to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about what it takes to actually get a book published in this world? So as always, we're going to focus on three areas on the podcast. So first, we're going to talk about learning proper writing techniques we're going to talk about studying the business, and then we're going to talk about something that's not so fun, but is really important in life, which is rejection. So, Paul, what do you mean when you're talking about learning proper writing techniques? Because I know how to, you know, capitalize a letter and put punctuation at the end and use quotation marks. I mean, is that what you're talking about here? No, not not quite. But of course, that's important. Um, you know, that, that's what copy editors are for. Uh, but really, when I'm talking about proper writing techniques, uh, you know, I, I should maybe more probably call them proper storytelling techniques uh, because I think they apply to you know oral storytelling just the same as as they would you know written storytelling. Um, but uh, you know. You, you see a lot of common problems uh, when you, you read and evaluate as many uh, stories as I do on a, on a fairly regular basis. And 
I generally break it down to four or five things that, you know, and I, I get this question all the time um, from, from uh, aspiring authors or illustrators, you know, what, what do you, when you read a manuscript, what are you looking for? Um, and I would say, I almost always say to people, um, when I'm reading a manuscript, I am reading for conflict uh, almost first and foremost. Um, and what I mean by that is that you have, you know, whatever story you're telling, uh, you generally have to put, you know, it, it, it's best if you put uh, the character that we're reading about into some sort of peril, uh, because that naturally gets the readers and the listeners uh, engaged, and they, if if you've done your job of creating an interesting character that uh, writers or readers can sympathize with, then um, we will care what happens to that particular person. Um, and I don't care if you're watching a television show or you're reading a novel or you're reading a a, a picture book for five and six year year olds. Uh, you pick up any book that you that that you really loved or any television show that you really got immersed in, and almost always you if looking for this stuff, you will realize that there has been some conflict. Uh, Presented in an early on stage, um, we the, the the an example I can think of right now off the top of my head is that uh, we have a picture book out by Ryan Higgins called uh, "Don't Eat Your Classmates," and uh, if if no one has seen it before. Um, I'll explain that it's about a, a little a female dinosaur. Uh, she's she's going to her like first day of kindergarten, and she's really nervous uh, to be there. And uh, you know, just because it's first day of school is kind of jitters, which is a very natural thing. And uh, anyway, she shows up to her first day of class only to find out that all of her the rest of the students that are in the classroom aren't dinosaurs, but they're humans. And that poses a real problem because, you know, here we go with conflict, uh, because for Penelope, who's a dinosaur, um, children are delicious. <laughs> so uh, her impulse is to eat them. And, uh, and, and she can't resist at uh, one point, and she gobbles up one of the kids, and of course the teacher sees her do it, and she says, spit out, you know, your classmate right this instance, we do not eat our classmates. Uh, so then Penelope has to sort of struggle uh, with that for the remainder of the school year. You know, the, the book takes place over, you know, the you know first few weeks of school where Penelope's really struggling with this uh, impulse to eat the children. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, the only way that she really learns her lesson is by kind of having her own come up. It's, and, uh, you know, I won't ruin the end for, for people that haven't read the book, um, but it's, it's good fun. And and it seems silly and slapstick, but if you really sit down and kind of look at it on a for, sort of formulaic uh, approach, um, there is, you know, yes, it's silly, yes, it's slapstick, yes, it's funny, but it also has a really good conflict. Um, and it's a conflict that children uh, of that age range that, that we're targeting for the audience uh, can identify with. Kids get that, you know, the first day of school is tough, that things, you know, that, that you're nervous and that all of us carry like some flaws and downfalls that uh, can get us into trouble. Um, and in this you know situation, you know, the eating of the children is just a metaphor. You know, it could be that, you know, the, the kid slugs, you know, your kid slugs somebody at school anytime that he's upset or he picks his nose or whatever it is that kind of makes you stand out from the rest of the group. Um, and, and it's really about teaching uh, empathy, compassion, and, and, and social skills, um, so, but all wrapped into this conflict. And uh, so uh, when I'm particularly, you know, almost anything that I'm reading, uh, whether it be a, a, an adult novel that I would read for my own enjoyment or whether it be a picture book that somebody's sending to me that I would look to send out to a, a publisher or an editor, um, I'm first and foremost I'm reading for that conflict and whether or not it's, you know, it's, it's a conflict that's engaging. And if I'm evaluating it for the business world, um, you know, is that 
conflict uh, appropriate to the audience that that we're dealing with here because there's there's some conflicts that are appropriate to children uh, there's some conflicts that are more appropriate to the adult you know publishing world Five years ago, I would I told I was telling people, you know, and there's always trends in the in, in this business. And you know, four or five years ago, I think I sold three different books about bullying, you know, in some way or another. Um, and you know, when it comes, particularly when it comes to children, um, uh, in storytelling, and I I would say, you know, I have two young kids of my own. Um, they feel things a little deeper <laughs> than adults do in some ways. You know, when, when their feelings are heard, it's kind of a little deeper. It maybe takes a little, you know, teasing can, can be a little tougher uh, to handle at that age than, you know, when you're in your 40s or something like that. Um, so, yes, uh, there, there are a slew of books out there um, that are published on a regular basis that uh, have identified that situation and, uh, and are, are catering to it or speaking to it and either, you know, making other children aware that, you know, their, their, what their actions and their words have um, impacts on others. And there's also books out there that kind of try to teach kids to, um, you know, take things and, and, and accept them a little bit more and maybe not personalize stuff as, as much. So, yes, I am seeing that in, in the marketplace, Carrie. You know, I have to say, so one of my favorite books, uh, the series is Chowder, the character Chowder. Peter Brown's, uh, it's a bulldog, right? Chowder's a bulldog. Correct, correct. And I correct. don't remember which one it was, but the one where, maybe it's the first one where um, Chowder's owners take him to the grocery store. Yes, that would be the first one, yes. Yeah, and he gets himself into trouble trying to fit in. Yes, yes. Um, and my students just loved yeah. that book. Yeah, and, and, Chow and Chowder's problem is is that he's he's been so pampered by his owners that he actually thinks he's a human, basically. Um, and he does, you know, he listens to, uh, you know, podcasts on his on his headset. He plays on a computer. He does all of these things that an animal wouldn't do. And, he, and he's living in a world where all the other animals actually act like animals, you know. And uh, so when he finds himself at a petting zoo and he's having interactions with animals that are just out in the open roaming around like normal sheep and, you know, goats and whatever would do, um, he he seems he feels out of place, um, and then has to find a way to kind of fit fit in. And and also he's slobbery and kind of pudgy and looks funny. So he's got a lot working against him, but he he does persevere. <laughs> I just love that talk. I love that, and I love the second one is where he goes to camp. Right? They send him to try to go to camp. Yes, yeah, yeah. That would be the fabulous bouncing chowder. I think is the actual title on that. And and yes, a similar situation where he, he does it quite clear. I'm kind of going on a tangent with that, but I think those those are two examples. Like a lot of you know, I taught third, fourth, and fifth grade, and I used a ton of picture books in even my fifth grade classroom just to like talk about you know, different literary elements or whatever, you know, whatever we were learning that week. But, um, you know, there were so many picture books, I will say, that my students, even 10 and 11-year-olds, were there were animals as the main characters that they just loved. So what is it about animals? Why are animals so popular in children's books? Well, the audience, first and foremost, you, you have to bear in mind, um, kids uh, on the whole seem to, you know, gravitate toward um, animals more than uh, adults would, in my opinion. Um, but it's... I think I think a lot of uh, children's book writers and illustrators choose animals as their main characters uh, because it, it it offers a bit of a barrier, uh, so that it's not an actual child, but it's a hippopotamus, you know, a baby hippopotamus or something like that. So it do, it doesn't seem so close to uh, the kids, in, in my opinion, and. You know, and honestly, when, you know, a lot of the books that I work on personally, um, 
or tend to be funny or at least kind of fun. And, uh, you know, listen, uh, uh, an ostrich is a lot more fun. <laughs> Uh, and goofy looking than, you know, just some normal, regular old kid that's going to school, you know, thing. And uh, so, yeah, I would say that that's part of the reason uh, that, that you're finding animals in, in children's literature and even, you know, cartoons for that matter, uh, you know, and, and animated films, you know, they just, uh, it, it's, they're, I think they're overall a little more fun to work with and, and they can stand in for, you know, pretty much anybody, uh, whether it be kids or adults. So Paul, what do you think, like you have your conflict in place. I know you and I talked a little bit about like narration and how to write engaging content for a children's book. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on uh, two, two points here. One, one is uh, after after I read for conflict, the next thing I look for are, are well-developed characters that children can identify with. Um, it's uh, and and by well-developed characters, what I what I tell writers to concentrate on is is giving you know specific details uh, that allow the readers to sort of frame up what type of person they're dealing with, and um, in in. When I mentioned that conflict is a key ingredient, um, the, all of these little sort of bullet points go hand in hand. Uh, it's really hard to have a good, engaging conflict if you also don't have, if you also don't have um, a, a well-developed character, uh, because you're not really going to care about what conflict this character encounters if if you're not invested in that particular character as a reader. Um, so uh, what I generally advise my clients to do is to give um, specific details that can uh, make children uh, say, oh, I, I identify with that particular person or I sympathize with that particular uh, character that, that is being uh, displayed. And one of the things that I like to tell people all the time is that, you know, it's really easy to do something like say, you know, Eddie the elephant is shy, or Eddie the elephant is really spoiled. Um, it's I think it's a much better writing technique, um, and and is ultimately more rewarding for your readers if you say instead of saying Eddie the elephant is spoiled, you actually show that Eddie the elephant had his mom take him to you know the ice cream shop, and you know he gets a single scoop cone, and he's in line complaining to his mom uh, that he didn't get a Sunday. You know, that as a reader, I then don't have to be told, you know, specifically Eddie the Elephant is spoiled. I can just see it in, in an action sequence. Um, and then so once you start to kind of get a feel for who this character is, is he is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is is he a sympathetic? You know, is it sad? Is it a sad story about this? You know, is the author trying to get sympathy out of me? Or is the author trying to paint a picture for or this is a sort of bad character, you know, uh, you know, sort of thing. So once you start to find the details that you can give, and, and particularly in picture books, you have to be really adept at this stuff because you don't have a lot of space. You know, most traditional picture books are between somewhere between 32 and 40 pages, and word count-wise, we're looking nowadays anywhere from 500 at most, I would say, 2,000 words. So you have a little very limited time. Yeah, yeah, two thousand words would be would be on the very long side. I I would say the trend now is more toward uh, the five hundred to a thousand words uh, per, per picture book. Um, when in in my early twenties, uh, early two thousands, uh, we we got away with a little more long winded picture books, but that that trend has kind of gone away. Um, they they really like short and sweet now. Um, so you have to be able to. Um, you know, describe a character with a limited amount of words, a limited amount of sentences, and you know, the nice thing about a picture book is that you also have this illustrator that comes in um, with artwork and can show emotion uh, or 
problems or all sorts of various details um, through facial expression or other you know things that are happening in backgrounds um, to sort of give you clues as to uh, what this character is because we all have to realize that when you first come in to a book um, it's a blank page and, and we know nothing about the character the only stuff that we know is what you provide as the, the author um, so you have to be very selective about your details and every detail every sentence should be contributing to either building a conflict developing the character or uh, setting the stage because setting is very important too um, you know uh, so that that's that speaks to character a little bit and then when it went to kind of go back to narration and voice um, that again all of this stuff kind of intertwines with one another and it's hard to have have one without also having the other you know if you're doing one well generally uh, or if you're doing overall well it's because you're doing all of these things um, well if if your characters aren't very well developed then probably your conflict's not going to be very strong either uh, if your if your narration isn't uh, a spot on well then your your setting is probably going to be hard to decipher um, you know if your dialogue is isn't snappy then the pace of your your uh, of your text may not flow very quickly uh, when, it, when it comes to developing a, a voice and narration, I often, when I'm going to, and the importance of it, um, I often tell, uh, ask my uh, audience at, at a conference, I say, uh, you know, because everyone sees, has seen at least one Star Wars movie, I feel like. And so I'll say to folks, I was like, what is the first thing that in the very original first made Star Wars movie, I think it's called Star Wars New Hope now, uh, you know what? What's the first thing that happens when, when um, you know, when that movie begins? And you'll get all sorts of answers. You know, a lot of people remember the scene where uh, Darth Vader walks through the smoke in the hallway, you know, chasing down Princess Leia. Or uh, other people remember like the, you know, the the, the big ships flying over the uh, the screen in, in a very interesting sort of perspective and whatnot. Um, but you know, before any of that happens. Um, the, uh, what comes across the screen is what's famously called the crawl now. Um, and a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know, da -da -da -da, you know then the music and then the scroll. And it'll, it'll say something, it'll, the crawl, and it'll say something like, uh, if I recall, it's like, uh, it's a galactical civil war and the rebel alliance is fighting against the, you know, the dark side or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, Darth Vader's chasing down Princess Leia. And so they set the stage. And to me, that speaks to narration. And, and um, you know, particularly when you're dealing with a, a sci-fi or a fantasy novel or something like that, um, narration and voice sets the stage, lets you know where you're at, what's going on, and what's important, and what the reader needs to focus on. Um, and, and good narrators do that. Um, and there's all sorts of different narration, and you really have to pick and choose between which narration works for the particular story that you're doing. You know, first-person narration, may, you know, where you're actually hearing the story being told by the main character of the book um, in his or her own voice. Um, you know, sometimes people find that that works best for young adult novels. Uh, Third-person omniscient, where it's a, um, a, a narrator that's outside of the story and it's all-knowing and is kind of looking above like a, a god would. Um, you know, some people find that that works better, uh, you know, for a children's picture book. Uh, so, you know, study your, your various different options that you have in narration. And then, you know, when, when it comes to narration and voice, it's really about practice. Um, you know, it, 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 writing as practice, verbally uh, storytelling as practice. When I was doing a lot of writing on my own in college, uh, I would sit there and write a man, you know, write five pages of fiction, then print it out, stand up, and read it aloud to myself to hear how it sounded. Because I was always very concerned about how it would sound. Um, and, and if I if I were you know presenting this in front of you know an audience of two thousand people, <laughs> I would want and I had 
to read it. I would, you know, I wanted to make sure that it sounded right. Uh, and I, I don't know that enough writers read aloud to themselves. And it's particularly important when we're dealing with children's picture books, um, because the, how are those read? I mean, in bed with your kid, um, with the adult generally reading aloud to the child. And so if the if the narration is off, it is it is it snappy? Is it fluid? Is it uh, precise? Uh, you know, you're, you're you're going to have trouble keeping you know your reader engaged. Um, so that's a rather long-winded but kind of short crash course on you know some of the writing techniques that that I think would help the teachers or any aspiring author uh, to become a better writer. It's certainly some of the things that I'm looking for every time that I'm evaluating a manuscript, and when I'm when I'm pitching uh, manuscripts. Uh, potential that would could be potentially published into books. Um, I generally uh, I, I may say to an editor when I send it over to that person, um, hey, this author has the most incredible voice I've ever you know come across, or uh, man, this is one of the most engaging conflicts that I've ever seen in a children's book. Uh, so th- these are things that I not only look for, but I use to pitch and sort of attract other editors. So I know that they not only am I looking for it as an agent, but I know editors and publishers are looking for it uh, and, and consider it requirements for, um, you know, potential books that they're going to publish. That is so helpful, Paul. I think that is really, really helpful. And I think it's interesting because especially teachers, they're teaching a lot of these things to their kids every day when they're teaching writing, especially, you know, elementary age teachers, everyone teaches writing. Um, so even if you don't want to write a children's book and you don't want to submit um, a manuscript to an agent, that can be helpful for what you're te- teaching your kids in the classroom about writing. So that was really helpful. But I think this is a perfect segue, segue into talking about this business. So you said studying the business is important. Why is that? Well, because it's going to improve your chances of getting uh, a, a, a manuscript accepted by an agent, an editor, or a publisher. Um, and, you know, I, I made a quick little joke about what I thought when I was in college, what was how, how, what the path that you would take to get published. And, you know, I, I was under the impression, the, you know, the misimpression that if you just, you know, wrote these short stories and sent them off to the magazines that, you know, eventually somebody's going to call you up and a- ask you to write a novel. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, you know, that's, that's just, you know, and, unless you're just become this wildly successful short story writer that has a, you know, something published in the New Yorker every month, um, that's not going to happen. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I run into all sorts of people in, in, you know, walking around just in normal life that find out the, the job that I have. And, you know, you'd be surprised how many people will tell you that they have a children's book story or, you know, an idea for a book um, and they, and they want to run it by you. And, and uh, you know, so there's no shortage of, in the world of people like that. But uh, I, I, what I find to be uncommon is that the folks that have come up with this idea or have a rough draft uh, of, a, of a story, uh, that they've actually done the proper research on, on how the process works. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, uh, I, I'll explain the process here. Uh, if you're an aspiring author, you uh, you have a couple options. You can you can try to get a, a someone like me that's called a literary agent. Um, and what we do is we're kind of a filtration system uh, for the editors and the publishers that that actually print books. And we uh, look through the, the the masses of manuscripts that come in and try to select the best ones, and then sign up the authors uh, and represent them, and then go submit that work to editors that then uh, potentially uh, take on the project. Um, so I'll, I'll say that, you know, I'll, I'll walk it from the beginning to the end. Uh, so if, if you submit to me and I like your work, I will then sign you up. We will then work together to polish the manuscript, get it into a shape that I think it's, it's, it's good enough to start to send out. I generally like to set, submit 
uh, a manuscript to multiple editors at a time um, at, at multiple publishing houses. I may send to as many as 10 or 50 publishers at one time um, to improve our chances of getting uh, a, a book deal. Uh, so we'll send it out to 10 or 15 people. We sit, we wait back. It could be uh, you know a couple weeks, could be a couple months. You know, sometimes it lasts even longer than that. Uh, and we wait and we hear back from people. The vast majority of the times, it's the reality of this business. We'll touch on this later. Is you're going to get you know 75, 80% rejection uh, on, on a manuscript like that. Um, and what you hope is that maybe one or two, or even if you're really lucky, three or four uh, editors at with various publishing houses like your work, uh, and then they eventually, hopefully. Um, extend an offer to uh, to buy your book and publish it. Um, and that, and that, it's at that time that I come in again as the agent and negotiate and the, the deal uh, on the author's behalf. Um, we work out the terms. And then after that's done, then you go to the actual real editorial stage where you're now working with a publisher, you know, an editor at a publishing house like HarperCollins or Simon & Schuster or Random House or Disney or something like that. And you work alongside this editor to really get the final polish on it, um, you know, tweak some things here, maybe a major overhaul there. It all depends on what we're working with here. And then eventually uh, that manuscript has been approved. It goes to copy editing, um, you know, the marketing and publicity team at the publishing house, uh, you know, evaluates it and decides to get a, you put together a publication plan. Is your book seasonal? You know, is it is it a subject matter that's uh, appropriate for a spring publication? Is it a Christmas book? Should it be published in, you know, in, in, in the fall or, or uh, late fall, uh, so it's in time for you know the holiday season, uh, so on and so forth. And then once they put together the marketing publicity plan, um, the, the book goes into production and uh, is uh, generally printed uh, either abroad or sometimes in the United States uh, and is, is shipped um, and then distributed to all the various bookstores uh, throughout the nation. And then the book comes out, and uh, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you got a book tour uh, scheduled, or you're going to do some school visits, some classrooms, um, and you present your material there. And and after that, you um, can sort of sit back, cross your fingers, and and hope the book sells really well. Um, so that's kind of the the quick, dirty version of of, of what happens. Um, and you know, you'd be surprised at how many people are unaware of of that. The, the various steps in the process that, that happens there. Um, so, you know, to touch on my points here on doing your research, um, I think nowadays, uh, I think most authors would tell you that it's important to have a literary agent. Um, you know, maybe a decade ago when this was a little smaller and sweeter, uh, it wasn't necessary, particularly in the children's book world, but I still, I, I think it's it's very important to have that sort of thing now. Uh, somebody in your in your court working for on your behalf uh, to make sure that, that your needs are being met. Um, you know, the publisher, of course, is going to try you know, if it's a good publisher, is going to try to do all they can to uh, make you happy. But at the end of the day, they have stockholders and bottom lines, and you know they're they're in it to, as a business. Um, and authors, uh, it's a very difficult situation because you know authors are artists, and what they produce is near and dear to them. I mean, I've had authors treat their work like babies sometimes, and um, it, it's it's a very difficult process. That, uh, so there, it's nice to have a buffer. Uh, somebody like me in the middle uh, that can uh, talk the business savvy stuff, but also identify with the author and be sympathetic and, and have my interests are always in line with the authors. Uh, occasionally, the publisher's interests don't necessarily line up with the authors. And in that situation, that's where I really come in handy uh, in my job. Um, but anyway, uh, back to studying the business. Um, research, so if you're going to get a literary agent, I would recommend, you know, and there's a lot of them out there. If, um, you know, if we're talking about the children's book world, I would say that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 50 reputable children's book agents out there. That might be a little high, but that's a rough guesstimate on my part. Um, and uh, if, 
you know, um, most of them have websites, most of them are on social media in some way, uh, and uh, you can do a, a quick Google search uh, on children's literary agents, and I'm sure you'll be able to come up with a list of people uh, and, you know, go to their websites, see the clients that they represent, you know, uh, the illustrators that they represent, the authors they represent, are those people that you like, you know, are, are, is, that, is that the type of writer you aspire to be? Um, and if, if you're writing for children's books and the agent you're researching only does, um, you know, adult mysteries, you know, is there a genre they work in? Well, then you probably should send them their children's book. That's the, that seems very simple, a, a simple thing. But I, I'll tell you to this day, I get dozens and dozens of uh, manuscripts from people that want to uh, have an adult mystery published, and they're sending to me that works exclusively in children's books. I'm not your agent, you know, and it's the same thing for don't don't send your children's book to somebody that works in you know women's romance novels or something like that. It's just not going to fit right. Um, the 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 connections are different. The the associations with the various people that you need to be connected with are, are completely different. Um, the the folks that I, the editors I work with in the children's book world are completely different than the, the editors that work in the adult. Uh, publishing divisions uh, and and we all have these little subgenres too uh, so um, do your research on on your agents what do they represent what type of what are they looking for most most uh, agents have like a mission statement this is what we want uh, you know for, for for me it's like hey I'm a small boutique children's book agency we're only interested in taking on children's book stuff um, we do really well with um, children's books that are illustrated, whether they be picture books, board books, graphic novels, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we, we work a little bit in young adult and middle grade, uh, but we, we kind of make our bread and butter doing picture books and, uh, um, and other illustrated type titles. Um, so, you know, that, that's very important. And then in the same uh, situation, uh, if, if, you're going, if you're going to submit on your own directly to a publisher, uh, which is perfectly acceptable. Um, the, the, you know, the editors not, might not read it, but it, you know, it, it, it's you can do this. Um, you can send your work directly to an editor at a publishing house, and uh, but do your research in that regard too. Uh, if you have a literary agent and you and, and you sign up with me, I already know all this stuff. I know who's looking for. You know, I know the editors. I know the editors that like dogs, and I know the editors that like cats. <laughs> you know, um, I know the editors that are looking for graphic novels. I know the editors that are looking for board books. Um, you know, because I'm working in this business on an intimate basis regularly. Um, if you're if you're an aspiring author, this this information might not be privy to you, uh, but you can do uh, get a decent amount of. Um, uh, information with a little bit of research and look at like Abrams Publishing House. What have they done before? Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Oh, if I have a book that's you know comparable to Diary of the Wimpy Kid, that might be the appropriate place to send it. Um, you know, so on and so forth. So, uh, and if if you're looking at a publisher like say Disney. Um, you know, they're going to be more commercially sanded. So if you have some sweet, soft, sentimental, uh, quiet picture book that's kind of a nighttime story, Disney might not be interested in it. They, they're, they're generally looking for very character-driven uh, books that, uh, you know, I, I always like to say, and it's not just Disney, but it's a good example, um, but they're looking at characters that can be put on, you know, lunch boxes and T-shirts and so on and so forth because that's our, that's our business model, and it works. Um, so they're not going to, they're going to be interested in stuff like that, maybe not stuff like, you know, the, that, that isn't character-driven. Uh, so do your research on publishers, um, you know, your, your agent should know this stuff, but, uh, you know, occasionally with my clients, I'll sit down and I'll say, hey, here's the 15 publishing houses that I'm thinking of sending your work to. And if, if the author is educated in, in the field, um, he or she may say to me, oh, Paul, you know, I, I, I've seen Disney's list or I've seen Simon Schuster's list, and I, I just don't see this book getting published by them. Uh, so let's, let's take them off the list and, and you know, replace it with somebody else that, that this story may be appropriate for. Uh, and then we'll have an honest discussion about, you know, why that is and whether it makes sense. Um, 
And then the, the final thing that I would tell people to do uh, when, when studying the business and a, and a good way to find out a lot of this information, because, you know, only so much of it is available online, uh, but there, there's this, uh, as attend writing conferences, um, there's a great organization for the children's book world called the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, uh, SCBWI is, is what they often are go by. And... Uh, Anyway, they have a lot of, you know, they're a nationwide uh, organization, but they also have regional chapters. Um, you know, I, I know there's one in, in Chicago and in the, in the various suburbs. Um, and uh, it's, it's a community that gets together, you know, on a halfway regular basis. Um, almost all the folks in the in the organization are aspiring writers trying to get their first book published. And they have little um, presentations, community events. Uh, where they talk about their struggles, um, they do writers groups, they do reading groups, um, they have, you know, editors, agents. I've spoken at these conferences on many occasions, um, and, I, and I will come in to a conference like this and, and give a presentation, much of which, uh, which is much similar to what I'm kind of saying to you here. And uh, so you can learn a lot by, by going through these organizations, and, and you can also kind of get your pals, you know, within the industry. And, and so, because this is a, a tough business, and um, you know, you know, it's hard to break into. Uh, so it's nice to have a comrade or, or two to kind of sit with and discuss and the trials and tribulations and the difficulties of um, getting, you know, getting your foot in the door to a publishing house. So I would recommend, you know, doing that. That's a great way to sort of study the business and get your research. And um, you know, that organization. I know is very good about supplying its members with a list of editors and a list of agents that work within the business. So if you aren't able to, you know, research and find this stuff online, they have a database ready to go. And if you are a member of their, their organization, they will, it's part of your dues. You will get that, you know, you will get that information and you can, you know, use that and submit to, you know, 30 agents if you want, when you're, when you're trying to, you know, get your book published. So uh, that, that's, that's my bit on studying the business. That's super helpful. So it's interesting because um, Educators to Educators um, just celebrated its one-year birthday. And, Congratulations. And thank you, thank you. It's been a great year. And um, I just, the audience will be able to hear before this podcast my one-year reflection episode. And so I was talking a lot about how had I waited until the podcast was perfect, had I become this amazing podcaster had I done all the research and was just waiting to, you know, create the first perfect podcast, I never would have started this, right? Like at some point I just needed to jump in and create something and get better at, at it over time. And I think the journey of like learning and being vulnerable and um, getting better over time has been one of the most fulfilling things of the last year. So to your point, like listening to you talk about this and especially about this conference is some of the stuff you're talking about right now, it might seem overwhelming to someone. They might be like, well, forget it. I'm not doing this. And I think like just to kind of piggyback off of what you're saying is maybe it's that you, you know, study up on some of these writing techniques that Paul talked about and you write you know, your first manuscript and then sign up to go to one of these conferences. It, it's, I, I very rarely meet anybody that's an overnight success. You know, it's, uh, by the time that a writer, uh, find, you know, gets onto my client list, um, you know, many of them have been writing, you know, on their own for, you know, four or five, six years. Uh, many of them have been going to these SCBWI conferences, uh, you know, two, three times a year for four or five years. Um, it's, it is a slow, gradual build. Uh, and it's, you know, not only getting your foot in the door, but um, it, it, it's a slow business. I, I mean, uh, from the, the moment that you send me a manuscript to when it actually gets published, Usually, in a best case scenario, that's two years. 
Okay, so if it takes two years to get your first book published, think how long it takes to you know get five or six books published uh, that that can establish a, a regular audience for you. I mean, we're, we're talking about a career that you know generally spans a decade, you know, sort of time. So, you know, if you're looking for a quick buck, you've come to the wrong place. You know, <laughs> it's uh, uh, the, most people that I work with that are that are really good at this. Um, would probably do it even if they weren't getting paid. You know, yeah. they're dedicated to the craft. Um, it's something that's near and dear to their heart, and and they they work extremely hard at it. Um, so you know, I, I would say that to to most folks. Uh, you know, getting into to the business is that you know, accept that it's going to be yeah. a long journey. Um, because uh, and I think that gets us into that third point where we're talking about accept that rejection is part of the process. Uh, because you know, many of the writers that I end up uh, representing, um, you know, will tell me that, you know, I sent to, you know, 30 different literary agents before I found one, you know, sort of thing. Or, um, you know, I, I've, I've had situations where I'll, I'll send out, you know, I, I'm, I am now a literary agent that has, you know, uh, over a decade or more of experience and I'll oh, shoot, I'm working on 20, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I represent, uh, you know, writers and illustrators that have been New York Times bestsellers and uh, and various other things. Um, Caldecott Honor winners, Newberry Honor, you know, Vicki Jameson won a Newberry Honor. Um, and, uh, you know, I still will send out, uh, you know, manuscripts to 15 editors. Some of these editors I've worked with for a decade. And I will get... Sometimes they won't respond to me, you know, that's just the nature of the business. And I don't get offended about it. I realize that people are busy, um, but I've had situations, you know, and, and you just move on to the next person um, and, and don't really get bent out of shape with it. And you have to just sort of accept that that's part of the process. But I have plenty of writers, um, you know, over the years send something to me and, you know, maybe I, I, I missed it or I didn't respond or I, I actually flat out rejected it. And they'll come up to me later or maybe send me an email, you know, with something really nasty or like, you know, I, I sent my manuscript to you six months ago and you didn't respond. <laughs> and, you know, I understand the impulse and the reaction that, that comes from that, but, you know, it, that also, you know, sort of makes you stand out as somebody that quite that hasn't really done the research on, on how this stuff works, is that every editor, every agent that you're submitting to is completely, totally overwhelmed. And it happened, you know, in about 2004 when we started allowing authors to email us manuscripts instead of send them in the mail. <laughs> uh, our volume was already pretty high when we were having to read hard copies that came in, you know, through, through the regular posts. Uh, but once it became incredibly easy to send, you know, a manuscript to an agent, um, we all became immediately and totally overwhelmed. Uh, you know, I'm I'm receiving somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five hundred, uh, you know, submissions, uh, you know, every week or two. I would say is a, is a proper, you know, is a ballpark. Yeah, it's more than anyone could possibly read. It just is, um, and 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 that and that's what that's what a lot of aspiring authors and illustrators don't don't realize is that I'm I'm receiving that the editors are receiving you know that kind of volume too in a lot of ways, and you know there's only so much time that that we can devote to looking at new stuff while still maintaining and doing you know the work for the people that we represent, um, and and you know the editors are looking for new material, but they also are working on book that's coming out next year at the same time you know so we're all juggling a lot of things we're juggling what's what's due and what's and also what's coming out and, and, and is new um so uh you know accept that that there's a lot of people out there that want to write and there's only a handful that actually get published um and that if you're going to you know go through the the trials and tribulations of this is that that you're just going to get a lot of rejection even my you know my my best-selling authors and you know people that have had 10 or 15 books published i'll send out a manuscript and 75 percent of the editors that look at it will reject it that's just that's how it goes that's an average situation um we feel very fortunate if we send out a manuscript and three or four editors like it i mean that's likely the ideal situation in our in our business 
Um, it's very rare. Um, so you're going to have to hear a lot of no's before you, you hear a yes. Um, you know, if you're fortunate enough to get a book published, uh, there's going to be reviews that come out. Some of them might be good. Some of them might be bad. Uh, you got to learn to deal with that. Um, you have to learn to deal with criticism. Um, you know, your editor or your agent telling you, telling you that this character is well-developed or, you know, this, this plot line is, uh, goes off track or whatever it is, you have to learn to be able to step aside from your manuscript, not take it personally, and, and really be open to that sort of evaluation and then work to correct whatever it is that, you know, they're pointing out to you. Um, and the writers that don't have that or the aspiring writers that don't have that sort of expectation or that built into their, their, uh, their mind, are, are going to have a rude awakening and, and are eventually just going to get so frustrated that, that they're, they're, you know, I've seen it before where they quit, you know, and uh, uh, so there is a mental side to this stuff and there, there's this sort of degree of, um, you know, mental training that needs to be done uh, in order to sort of have the, the fixed skin. Well, Paul, I mean, this is like a, you know, aspiring authors dream to hear you talk about this and all your years of experience. And I think my biggest takeaway is that if you're going to go, you know, down this journey, it should really be about the joy of writing and creating and, and becoming a better author yourself. And then, you know, the icing on the cake would be to get the opportunity for an agent to even read it. Yeah. And that's absolutely the case. I mean, when I, when I was doing my writing in college, I honestly, you know, I wasn't trying to get published. Uh, I was doing it because it was fun, you know, and, and I enjoyed the process and I liked having the interaction with other authors um, that were trying to do the same thing. And I, I liked the process of being creative. I liked the way it made my mind work. And, uh, you know, the, the funny thing about writing, um, the more you do it, the more it becomes a habit and a routine. Um, I find that the, the more your imagination is working on a regular basis. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a, I think it's a fun way to, to be and, and to uh, fun activity. Um, and, you know, many of my clients have taken something that was a hobby or something that they enjoyed to do on their own and have been able to make a living at it. So. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's good to hear your voice, first of all, and uh, I do miss your storytelling. I need to see you soon, but uh, thank you so much for spending your time. I know you're going to really help a lot of people with this podcast. Anytime, Carrie. Well, that's it for our interview with Paul. He was an animated and very interesting guest. To find out more about Paul and everything that he does at Rodine Literary, check him out at rodineliterary.com. Paul, thanks for your time and your knowledge. And to all of you, until next time, my friends, keep on teaching on.